All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Josh Clark, and you're listening to Powerful with Jeff Couliard. Ten years ago, on a sunny Sunday in April, I found myself sitting in the light of this window, playing a game of Crazy Eights with some teenagers. A few months prior, I had started working at this addictions treatment center out in the ghost wilderness, only about 10 kilometers northeast of here. I was just starting to find my groove. I looked over at one of the young ladies on the couch who, up until that point, had been quietly reading her book, and I noticed tears streaming down her face. Immediately shifting from card-playing youth worker to concerned there's something wrong youth worker, I asked her if she was okay. With a look in her eyes that was equal parts pain and curiosity, she asked me a question I'll never forget. Jeff, is this what happiness feels like? That's the opening from a TEDx talk that I gave a few years ago called The Power of Human Nature, which was a look at really addiction through the lens of how does this make sense? How can we make sense of something like addiction? And does the framework of addiction help to describe other types of behavior in society? Overall, I spent about a dozen years working in youth addictions treatment, working with young people, and their families in a three-month residential drug treatment program. And to say that that experience was enlightening or eye-opening is an understatement. I think that the lessons that I learned there will carry with me for my entire life. And they gave me a unique perspective on human behavior and everything from parenting to education to leadership to basically power dynamics and In this episode, I want to break down a little bit of that. I want to break down my journey with power and introduce you to to me and my perspective, because I think it's really important that we understand where people are coming from in this day and age. I know I've talked a little bit about the polarization that we're facing in this world and how it can be hard to have nuanced conversations. And I think that part of that is due to a lack of curiosity and a lack of understanding. You know, we try and jump to problem solving before we have a really solid grasp of what problem is that we're trying to solve. And addiction is no different than that. In fact, it might be the most shining example that I can think of, of a problem that's been identified that isn't actually a problem. You know, addiction is actually a solution. Substance use in people's lives is a solution to an underlying level of distress or discomfort or pain More often than not, it's actually just pain, uh, physical or emotional or psychological pain that people are trying to numb. And so if we talk about addiction more as behaviors that that numb our feelings, that gives us some really interesting clues into other domains of life, from the current epidemic of social media and disconnection through the internet to kind of the more basic, like, what do you do on a Friday night when 
part of you wants to go for a workout or take the dog for a walk, and part of you wants to just sit on the couch and watch Netflix and drink a glass of red wine and maybe feel a little bit of guilt for doing that. And you wake up Saturday morning having drank maybe half the bottle instead of just one glass and you're feeling kind of crummy about it. How do we understand that behavior and how can we increase our level of personal power and autonomy and choice so that more often than not, we're making choices that align with our deeper underlying values or goals, right? And how do we understand power more broadly in society and see how it plays itself out in interactions, in dynamics between people who have power and people who don't have power. Right? So we're gonna be talking on this podcast again. It's a pretty wide ranging conversation. When you look at something like power, that's a huge topic and we can hit it from lots of different angles. And we're going to hit it from lots of different angles. So if you've listened to episode one already with Dr. Cedar Barstow, she is the author of the Right Use of Power Framework and you'll understand that there are four different types of power. There's personal power, role power, status power, and collective power. And there's also this dynamic called the up and down power dynamic. If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you maybe hit pause on this one, go in and listen to that episode to get a better, firmer understanding of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about power. Right? In episode two, we looked at one of the myths out there that is this myth of the hyper-individual and this idea of grit, and that people just need to be grittier, and that will solve their, their problems. And that's really rooted in a very individualistic look at, at society and at the world. We had a really good conversation with my, my friend and colleague, Vince Fowler, who's a business coach. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you, you hit that one as well. I'm trying not to make these sequential. You know, They should stand alone as episodes, but some of these earlier ones are going to be fundamental to understanding my perspective, but also why I'm asking the questions that I'm asking and kind of where we're going with this conversation about power. So let's kind of pick things up where my TEDx talk leaves off and the conversation with Vince kind of leaves off as well, which is the fundamental wrestling match that we're having in society between individualism and collectivism. You know, I think it really does kind of boil down, at least in, in Western, in the Western world, in North America, we seem to be constantly wrestling with this notion of are people individuals who are entirely 100% responsible for their own choices and their own, you know, destiny? in life? Or do we live in a collectivist society? Do we Are we heavily influenced or entirely influenced by our circumstances and by our environment and by our context? And I think that, you know, one of the biggest problems is that we believe that it's one or the other. And then we go and build political parties around that idea. And we build policies and structures and educational systems around that idea. And we don't critically examine that idea very often. And so that's part of what this podcast is for. It's to dig into who are we and how do we organize ourselves as individuals, but also in society so that we get maximum benefit, so that there's as equal of opportunity as possible for any one individual to thrive and to not live in a world where there is a huge power imbalance and a huge power dynamic that plays itself out predictably um, across gender and ethnicity and where you happen to be born and how much money your parents happen to make. You know, there's this idea that we live in a meritocracy that you can get ahead if you just work hard enough. And that's just objectively not true. You know, I just saw in the news the other day that for the first time in 
decades, if not ever, the top 400 families in the U.S. for income um, pay less income tax as a percentage of income than the bottom 50% of people. And if that doesn't point us away from this idea of a meritocracy towards a oligarchy where very few people have you know, way more power and control over, the, over society than others, um, I don't know what does and you know certainly there's a lot of strife at least south of the border i'm up in canada but in the u.s there's been a lot of political turmoil not just over the donald trump years over the past couple years but you know through the obama years and and you know in the last few decades we can see that there's been a increasing divide and polarization of you know topics that probably shouldn't be polarized topics that are pretty important for us to find some sort of societal or community agreement about and why can't we get to that agreement? What's happening? And, you know, a lot of politics has devolved into identity-based politics, and it's been racialized, and it's been genderized, and it's been sexualized around sexual identities. And I think that that's actually a bit of a distraction. We're going to talk more in depth about this in some coming episodes, um, one in particular with Dr. Paul Gorski, who does a lot of work around equity and equity literacy in education. And he talks about the distraction that diversity is. And when we're talking about diversity, we're not talking about the systematic or the structures that underlie a lot of our institutions. And those are just the frameworks of power. And so I think that actually we should be having conversations about power and who has power and how they got it. And does it make sense that they have as much power as they do? And so we're going to be examining some of that. But before we get to some of these bigger conversations, I thought that it was important to talk a little bit about my own journey with power and how I understand it and the difference that it's made for me in my life to have a better grasp of power dynamics in relationships and in my life and the impact that that's had maybe on the, some of the people around me. And so going wait, right back to that, those early days of working in addictions treatment as a youth worker and that question that I started my TEDx talk with, the question about happiness from the young lady who had first experienced that emotion um, sitting around on a sunny Sunday morning playing cards and, and with a bunch of fellow uh, teenagers and some staff. And that question really got me going. It got me interrogating some of the most basic truths about addiction, addictions treatment, and what it means to be human. And so hence the title of the talk and the title of this episode, The, the Power of Human Nature. What exactly is human nature? Are we individuals who are just striving to get our needs met? And are we inherently narcissistic and self-serving? Or are we inherently a social being that thrives and lives our best lives when we're connected with other people and inside of a tribe of some kind? And I, I certainly believe the latter. I believe that a lot of the pain and a lot of the outbreak of addiction and depression and anxiety in society is largely to do with an increasing individualization. You know, this generation of millennials is lonelier um, by a pretty objective measure than any other generation in history since we started to track that metric. You know, we're more addicted, we're more obese, we're more anxious um, than, than ever before. And as you know, I don't like to point to one single causal factor. I think that we're more complex than that. But I do think that being dislocated, being disconnected from other people and from what's meaningful in our lives has a lot to do with that. And so when I'm talking about the power of human nature, I'm talking about what fundamentally drives our behavior. What gets us out of bed in the morning? 
What causes us to make the kinds of decisions that we make? So let's jump back into the TEDx talk and pick up where we left off. Now, just out of curiosity, quick show of hands or nod your heads. Who here would consider addiction to be a problem in society? And maybe you've had a close encounter yourself or a friend or a family. Maybe you've read about fentanyl overdoses every day for the past couple of years. It's perfectly reasonable for us to look at addiction and say, that's a problem. We should do something about it. I'm here to suggest that today, addiction is not a problem. Addiction is actually a solution. And we need to start looking at it like that if we have any hopes with dealing with it. Before we get to addiction being a solution, we need to understand some of the different ways that we've conceptualized addiction in society. First is the addiction is choice model. And that addicts are somehow morally weak, lack willpower. And if they would just pick themselves up by their bootstraps, things would be better. This conveniently takes the burden and the blame and places it squarely on the people suffering the most. Thankfully, about 40 years ago, psychologists came out with a new definition of addiction, characterizing it as a disease, like tuberculosis or Alzheimer's. This was certainly a move in the right direction. It reduced the stigma and most, more people would be inclined to seek treatment. Unfortunately, widespread enthusiasm for this disease model has caused us to overlook the fact that addiction has very little in common with diseases. Okay, at this point you might be wondering, if it's not a choice and it's not a disease, then what the hell is addiction? And to really understand what addiction is, first we have to go back to this idea that addiction is a response. Addiction, the behaviors, the patterns, the substance use, whatever it happens to be, is a response to a context. And it's a response that makes sense in that context. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what kind of contexts produce addiction or addictive behaviors? And it turns out that it's pretty predictable that the more pain that you're in, the more trauma you've encountered in your life, the more violence really that you've experienced, the more likely you are to suffer from substance use. In fact, one of the leading authorities on addiction, certainly in this country and possibly the world, Dr. Gabor Mate, who spent a lot of time in the downtown east side of Vancouver working with the homeless and addicted population there, suggests that we shouldn't be asking ourselves, why the addiction? We should be asking ourselves, why the pain? Because the people that he worked with, the people that he saw who injected heroin on a daily basis were really just in insufferable amounts of pain. And the heroin, or the drug of choice, that they happened to be using was the only thing that numbed the pain. And so we have to look at addiction more as a numbing activity than anything. In fact, most of the drugs that you read about or hear about, from fentanyl to alcohol, these are pain killers. Their primary function is to numb us from some kind of pain, whether that's a physical pain. In the case of opioid-based drugs like heroin or morphine or fentanyl and carfentanyl, which we're hearing a lot about, to alcohol. And I would argue social media, Facebook, on those days when it's 10.30 at night and you know you should be sleeping or you'd rather be sleeping or having a meaningful conversation with someone and you find yourself just mindlessly scrolling through Facebook. What's that about? Uh, Well, it might just actually be a little bit of boredom. And instead of dealing with that boredom and addressing it and looking it square in the face, we choose to numb it, numb the feeling. Right. So I think addiction in all of its permutations and combinations and severity just lives on a spectrum of either numbing us from some kind of pain, whether that's emotional or physical pain, or giving us a kick in the pants in the way that, you know, a hit of caffeine in the morning in your coffee or a hit of nicotine 
or a bunch of sugar in your pumpkin spice latte or a line of cocaine. Fundamentally, these things are just existing on a spectrum that hit us at the very deep level of the distress and arousal system. So when we are in pain, we can take something to numb that. And when we are don't have the energy that we want, we can take something to give us that kick. So if we take a step back from the addiction as choice model or the addiction as disease model, and instead just consider it part of our human nature, you know, our desire to not be in pain and our desire to have the energy and focus and clarity that we want, we can start to see addiction everywhere. From gambling to drinking to hard drug use to compulsive consumption to social media, you know, it's actually rare these days to find somebody who doesn't have some kind of addictive pattern or behavior or substance that they prefer to numb the pain that they're in. And so the question becomes, why are we in so much pain? You know, we are the most obese, loneliest, most addicted, most in debt generation in human history. And to blame that on the individual, to say that you just need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and things will be better, you just need to make better choices, isn't that helpful? But it's also not helpful to say this thing is a disease and we need to go to the doctor to deal with it. Because to be honest, for most of the people that I meet and the young people that I worked with for almost a dozen years, the kind of pain that they were in was a relational pain. It was a connection pain. It was a disease of meaning, of not having meaningful relationships with other people or themselves. In fact, when you dig into the research around addiction, you'll find a classic study called the Rat Park Study uh, by a fellow Dr. Bruce Alexander uh, here in Canada where he took rats and instead of placing them in cages by themselves, which had been the classic model of studying addiction, where you put a rat in a cage and you offer them two water bottles, one that's laced with cocaine or morphine or heroin, and the other one that's just plain water. And in that environment, rats would routinely overdose and die. So Dr. Alexander designed a twist to that experiment where he put rats into a place called Rat Park, where they were free to socialize and engage with other rats and do all kinds of rat-like things, from playing to having sex, um, offering, offering them the same choice of water that's been laced with drugs and normal water. And in that environment, inside of that cage, the rats thrived. None of them became addicted and none of them died of overdoses. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is what kind of cages have we constructed that make addiction and addictive behaviors way more appealing than anything else? And that's essentially the question that I finished my TEDx talk with. We know that addiction makes sense. It has to make sense. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. We know that it's a response to a context, to an environment that is lacking in certain meaningful things like relationships, but other things as well. And that experience that I had with the young lady on the couch, well, this is what I realized. Suddenly that experience that I had on the couch 10 years ago with that young lady crying at the discovery of happiness makes so much sense. She had opened the door to her cage. And that, my friend, is what I'm hoping for you in listening to this podcast and the various guests that I'm going to bring on is that we can bust open the door to your cage, whatever that might be. And I realize that it's probably not daily heroin use, and it's probably not something super dramatic, but I think all of us, myself included, have certain behaviors that we'd rather not have. We have certain things that we do that are actually getting in our own way. And understanding human nature and understanding how we tick and what makes us tick and how we can design and execute the life that we want to live, 
um, well, that seems like a really meaningful thing to talk about and to do. And so that's going to be the essential nuts and bolts of this podcast. Every episode is going to tackle it from a slightly different perspective. And why it's called powerful is because I realize that, you know, to break open your cage requires some power and all roads eventually lead to power, whether that's the power that you have as a person or the power that's been given to you by the systems and institutions and relationships that you're a part of. And so thank you for being on this journey with me. I look forward to exploring all things power, all things human nature, all things meaningful with you over the coming weeks and months and years. As always, thank you for listening to Powerful. And if you can take a few minutes to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and drop us a rating or a review, it's really helpful to help us spread the word and have a bigger impact in the world, which is really what we're here to do, as you know. And if you're interested right now, we have launched a contest. It's a coaching giveaway for the new year for 2020, January, February, March, three months of one-on-one coaching with me. And so you can access that on our website, www.jeffcoulard, that's J-E-F-F-C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D.com. We're giving away six sessions of one-on-one leadership, executive business, life coaching, whatever it is that is top of mind for you and is most meaningful for you is what we will talk about. So you can enter there for a chance to win. And as always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.